I'm Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly, and on today's Bill Kelly Show podcast, is Hamilton's canceled LRT project really dead? We ask Councillor John Paul Danko. A five-year pilot project has been launched in Ontario, allowing the use of electric scooters on our roads. And it's 2020. Do you have a New Year's resolution? We get some tips from personal trainer Kathleen Trotter. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's another new twist in Hamilton's cancelled LRT project. The provincial government now says the task force that's being set up to study transportation options for Hamilton will not only look at transit in the city, it will also look at highways. Ontario Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney cancelling the LRT, as we know, uh, last month saying the costs had ballooned from $1 billion to $5.5 billion. Now, this provincial task force that is going to investigate the best ways to spend this $1 billion that was awarded to the city by the previous Liberal government, which I'm guessing is now less than $900 million because of all the money the city and Metrolinx had been spending to scoop up properties along the LRT line. But I guess we'll find out the math from the province sometime soon. Well, this task force apparently is going to include four community members, non-politicians, four community members from this city, and it is scheduled to report back before the end of February with a list of alternatives. You know, what What should the city be doing with this $1 billion or $900 million or whatever we're left with? Is LRT still an option? Can we still go down that route? What about BRT? And is the federal government really interested in helping out the city of Hamilton? Mayor Fred Eisenberger said back on Monday that he had spoken to Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna. She's a MP in Ottawa Centre, but she is from Hamilton, so she has a lot of interest in what happens in this city. And basically she told the mayor, the mayor saying this, that uh, she is supportive of a move forward with LRT, but, this is a big but, would not commit any money. Well, let's bring in our first guest here. His name is John Paul Danko. He is the Ward 8 Councillor in the City of Hamilton, and he joins us now. John Paul, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Happy New Year. Welcome to the 2020s. Yes, Happy New Year to you and uh, your family as well. Uh, great to have you on the show today. So, so maybe we'll begin with this. Um, the, the, the newest twist is that the provincial government is also wanting this task force to look at highways in terms of transportation uh, dollars being spent in this city. Your take on that? Well, I think we need to back up a little bit and just talk about where we are right now and how we got there. The The idea that a provincial task force is going to ride some white horse into Hamilton and solve all our transportation problems on the back of a napkin in you know a few weeks' time is just absurd. To be perfectly frank, deciding local transit and transportation priorities, that's council's job. That is what we are elected to do and work with our communities to come up with a plan that works for the city of Hamilton. And, uh, you know, to a large extent, I I think that we've done that and we are in the process of doing that. We have a 10-year transit master plan. We have environmental assessments going out for widening the link in Red Hill, for widening and uh, doing work on our municipal roads, such as Rymel Road. Um, 
And LRT was part of that long commitment to transportation and economic development in the city of Hamilton. And it's not something that you can just decide how you're going to spend a billion dollars in just a few weeks with, you know, some unelected, unaccountable task force. I mean, the idea of it is completely absurd. And frankly, it, it should be offensive to Hamilton residents. So how do you see this task force playing out? It's going to be assembled. It's going to make its recommendations um, or, or lay out the options for for the city on how to spend this $1 billion. Then what? I mean, what happens and how much power does this task force have? Well, I, I think those are some of the questions that as a council and as a community, we have no idea. Um, it's somewhat unprecedented that the province would just come into a community and dictate, you know, what you're going to spend their, their transportation money on with virtually no communication and consultation with the community. I mean, it's not like LRT just uh, dropped out of the blue yesterday. That, it's a, that was a result of 12 years of community consultation, financial analysis, evaluation of the project, Elections won and lost over it. I mean, just looking back to the 2018 election, I was the only pro-LRT candidate in the Ward 8 race. I won by more than uh, double my closest competitor against four non-LRT um, com- um, candidates. The mayor handily won his race basically on the LRT as one of the, the main ballot questions. So that has already been decided. So the province to come in with a task force and, and you know override that democratic process is is crazy. And it's especially crazy because we're 90 days away from the tender close on LRT when we would have found out what the actual costs were, not the made-up costs that the province is saying. And I just since Christmas, since this is really broke, I've had hundreds, I think it's up around 500 emails so far, of uh, people asking the Premier, Premier Ford, asking uh, the Minister of Transportation, Kayla Mulroney, to let's just let the tender close and find out what the actual costs are. And if people want to send in their their own correspondence, just go to hamiltonlightrail.ca. There's a contact form there. And let the province know to just let the tender close, and then we'll have real-world real, real prices that we could compare. And, you know, if we are comparing highway projects, if we are going to compare BRT as an option, bus rail, bus uh, rapid transit instead of light rail transit, let's compare them to the actual cost, which we will know when the tender closes. So in your mind, is LRT still an option? Oh, clearly it's still an option. And if you talk to the business community in Hamilton, if you talk to, uh, you know, for example, Leuna, who has a vested interest in LRT because it would be their laborers and, you know, all kinds of local jobs for Hamilton uh, residents, um, there's, there's still quite a, you know, all of, all of the reasons why we as a council and why as we as a city decided that LRT was the best option are still there. Because at its core, LRT was never just a transportation project. It was an economic development project. And it ties into um, the entire, there's citywide consequences to changing this at the, at the last minute. So, you know, just the fact that we've already sunk $160 million into this project, I mean, clearly that corridor um, needs to be redeveloped so that those sunk costs just aren't lost. And LRT is really the only way for it to do that. So, in my, in my mind, it's definitely still an option. Um, you mentioned off the top that the mayor has been having conversations with the federal government as to um, 
ways that they might be able to help. And I think that would be the responsible thing to do and it is, again, to let the tenders close, get the real costs, and then while we're evaluate, evaluating the LRT costs, then, you know, we can do the same thing with BRT and other options to see if there would be, you know, something else that would be feasible. But again, all of the positive citywide, city building um, tax, you know, um, um, benefits of LRT, you know, haven't changed. Those are still on the table. We're chatting with uh, John Paul Danko, Hamilton Councillor for Ward 8 here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill. If LRT can't go for whatever reason, would you be on board with a BRT system? Is that the next best thing? Well, the only real difference between BRT and LRT is the vehicle. So whereas LRT was a train on rails, BRT is a bus train on rubber tires. It still has a dedicated lanes, transit stops. It's, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference in the actual what the route would look like. But the big difference is, number one, is the operating cost, where BRT has a much higher long-term operating cost, and number two, in the economic development potentials. So again, LRT was never just a transit project. It was primarily an economic development project. And when you look at the economic development potential for people that want to build and be located near a fixed rail corridor, they're much, much higher with, with LRT. So uh, the only trade-off is, is in the short term, BRT is slightly cheaper to build. But again, we've already done all that analysis, so I don't see there any, being any new information coming from that. Is the um, the white knight in this case the federal government? Is if, if the feds come through with any sort of funding, bridge funding, whatever the case is, uh, some kind of financing deal, would that be the uh, the oomph to get this project back on the rail, so to speak? Well, I think it would be fantastic to have the, the federal government at the table for sure. I know the federal government is interested in um, green transportation and green transit in, in Hamilton, you know, with Catherine McKenna being the Minister of Infrastructure. Um, she's from Hamilton, so I know she's very interested in our community and what happens here. But really, we need the province to be responsible and to live up to their commitments and, uh, you know, to deliver what they promised. And, you know, if there is a white knight here, I see that as Premier Ford in simply letting the tenders close. I mean, he has the option to do that, and he could he could make that decision tomorrow. Well, that will, uh, I'm not holding my breath on that one. Um, Scott Radley on his show on Monday night had a unique idea of the gondola system. It's not, it's not new here in Hamilton. It's been thought of for a while, but he just spent some time in Disney World down in Florida, and they have a gondola-type system and said it would be great to have something stationed downtown to the mountain uh, to kind of solve that kind of transportation need. Uh, thoughts on a possible gondola? I know we're spitballing here. But it's interesting. The gondola has been kind of something that's been kicking around in the background for a while now. And every once in a while, it kind of pops up and is sort of dismissed as, you know, a bit of a, you know, a, 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 you know not a mainstream idea. We'll put it that way. Um, but I, I walked down to City Hall from my, my home, kind of on the north central mountain. And what you realize when, you're, when you walk down the stairs um, to downtown is actually how close downtown Hamilton is to a lot of the city. And we sort of lose that perspective because the escarpment is in the middle, and we tend to you know, jump in the car, go on the mountain access, which takes us way out and around, whereas if you went in a straight line, it's really close. And I think a gondola could you know, be a potential. I'm not sure what its merits are really as a transportation option, 
Um, but it could be something that really puts our city on the map. It'd be something that would be unique and that would help to connect uh, the downtown, the lower city, and the mountain. And historically, we have had not a gondola, but we have had inclined railways that went up and down the escarpment that were, you know, very well used. So I, I certainly see potential there. Yeah, I think it's pie in the sky myself, but I, it is certainly a unique idea to, to bring back uh, maybe sometime down the road. Uh, John Paul, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. John Paul Denko, Hamilton Councillor for Ward 8. Um, back to Scott Radley's suggestion, he was making the suggestion Monday night, that Hamilton councillors should take a trip to Disney World just to see how this Disney Skyliner gondola lift system works it just opened in september it has five stations located throughout the resort and um apparently scott said it worked fantastically i haven't talked to him about it but i was just listening to a show on monday and he was suggesting that uh, maybe a trip down to florida for hamilton counselors would uh, open their eyes to this possibility now the one thing that may not work in this regard it, well, there's two things. Uh, we had Margaret Houghton on air uh, back in 2015. Let me just play you a clip of Ms. Houghton. And this is what she had to say what, now five years ago. Well, most people probably, in my opinion, wouldn't use it because they're going to drive themselves. Now, the automobile really did take over. I mean, there are people that use public transit, but you'd have to have a link between public transit at both ends of the gondola. And I totally agree with that. You have to have a link to public transit at both ends. And Scott's suggestion, if you missed it on Monday, was have one station at Lime Ridge and one station at Jackson Square. You have transportation links. You know, you get the, the bus, the HSR hub at Lime Ridge. You have HSR's bu- HSR buses buzzing around Jackson Square. You have lots of parking at Lime Ridge, that's for sure. Not a heck of a lot of parking in and around Jackson Square, although the underground parking, I, I think, would probably suffice. But here's the death knell, I think, to the gondola system, at least as big as the Disney one, and I, I guess it wouldn't be that big. Uh, the cost just for the electrical power for the Walt Disney World Skyliner system, $3.8 million, that's just for the electrical power. So, I don't know, maybe you can build something for a billion bucks, but I, I don't know. I think I think this LRT or BRT or whatever we use, this $1 million on, has to be more of a wide-reaching project, either economically or moving people around. And if we could do both, fantastic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A five-year pilot project allowing the use of electric scooters on provincial roads is now in effect, came into effect yesterday. And basically what the provincial government is doing, it announced this pilot in November, it's saying that these motorized vehicles, which were illegal to operate anywhere other than private property, will be allowed on our roads. Although they can't exceed 24 kilometers per hour, and they must have a horn or a bell. And the provinces that are doing this pilot project, again, this is a five-year pilot project, saying this is going to expand business opportunities 
and help cut down gridlock. Hmm. I raise an eyebrow to both those suggestions. But I guess we'll see. Now, here are some of the other rules that e-bikers or e-scooter users will have to adhere to. You have to be at least 16. You must wear a helmet. And your e-scooter or e-bike cannot weigh more than 45 kilograms. I'm not sure how much one weighs right now, but 45 kilograms is, is the max. Ministry said back on Tuesday that municipalities, I find this interesting, municipalities can pass their own individual bylaws to permit e-scooter use and set safety standards in their communities. And a ministry spokesperson also said, quote, We expect the municipalities that participate in the pilots to make safety a priority and establish rules that promote the safe operation and integration of e-scooters in their communities. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, all they're saying is, we hope communities participate. (laughs) David Lepofsky is the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, and he's also a visiting professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School, and he joins us now here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. David, good morning. Good morning and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, is, Is this pilot project a bad thing? This pilot project is a bad thing, and I think even calling it a pilot project is a bit of a farce. This is uh, just a couple of quick corrections. You said in your introduction <clears throat> that e-scooter riders need to uh, ride wear a helmet. Mm-hmm. That's only up to age 18. After that, you can ride one without a helmet, no problem, which means we're going to have more head injuries, uh, and uh, the public's going to have to pay the cost. The... Uh, uh, the other thing you mentioned, that this is relates to e-scooters and e-bikes, it only relates to e-scooters. Uh, just So here's what the problem is. This proposes to create a serious danger to the physical safety and uh, accessibility for people with disabilities in Ontario. It's actually a threat to physical safety of everybody. Um, people who will be allowed to ride an e-scooter if a municipality permits it need not carry insurance. They can be completely uninsured. They don't have to be licensed. They don't have to be trained. They don't have to know the rules of the road. They can literally just rent one of these things, pick it up, and instantly throttle up to 24 kilometers an hour and come rocketing towards you. They also uh, would be permitted to ride these not only on the roads, but on sidewalks. And they're silent. They don't make any sound. The motor doesn't make any. They're a motor vehicle, but they're a silent motor vehicle. So I, as a blind person, face the real risk of a 24-kilometer-an-hour rocket uh, coming towards me, driven by someone <clears throat> with no experience, no training, no license, no insurance. And uh, that is already a danger. Uh, but the other problem is the, the, the folks who've been pressing for this, the folks who have the inside track on the premier's office and who got the premier, premier Doug Ford to listen to them, they sure didn't listen to us, are these uh, companies from uh, the state or elsewhere that rent e-scooters. And, so, and, and their business model is this. You pick up an app, you tap on the app, you say, I want to rent one. It tells you where the nearest one is, and you pick it up. And where you'll find them is strewn all over the place. That's what we found from other jurisdictions that have allowed these. They don't have to be kept in a rack. 
out of the way of pedestrians. So again, as a blind person walking down the street, these could and predictably will be left on our sidewalks. So it's a tripping hazard and an accessibility hazard. If you're in a wheelchair or you use a, uh, a walker, you can be walking along a sidewalk that you thought was accessible until somebody left an e-scooter in your path. And we know this from other jurisdictions where these are allowed. And that's their business model, these rental companies. The way they make money is by renting these out, and they get free parking that you and I, the taxpayer, are paying for. So this is a danger both to our safety and our accessibility. Uh, under Ontario law, the province of Ontario is required to lead Ontario to become accessible to people with disabilities. They were given 20 years. It's, there's only five years left. And the Doug Ford government has done absolutely nothing new to implement that law in the 18 months since they took office. But what they are doing with this e-scooter program is threatening to create new barriers and make things worse. The last thing I'll tell you is you, I said at the start that calling this a pilot is a bit of a farce. This is not a pilot. If you're going to run a pilot project, you do it for six months or a year. This is a five-year way for the, uh, the rental companies who got there in with the premier's office to get their, their businesses set up and entrenched in Ontario. You don't need five years to study this. You don't frankly need to, any time to study it. Go to the other cities where these have been left all over the, the sidewalks where people have, the rates of injuries have gone up. Uh, and you can study to your heart's content that they're a bad idea. David Lepofsky is uh, the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. He painted a great picture, and I want to get to some of the points that you made, but what's the difference between an e-bike and an e-scooter? Well, for one thing, um, this regulation addresses e-scooters, and that's what these rental companies are pushing on a rental model. Um, a person, by the way, who owns their own e-bike is not going to be um, uh, conducting themselves so readily according to the kind of business model we're talking about. Um, and the, the other thing, and they cost a chunk of money. The big, the big issue here is the rental thing. Hmm. Um, and that's what the e-scooter companies rent. The other thing is, to ride an e-bike, you've got to first know how to ride a bike. You've got to have some skills already. For an e-scooter, you can know absolutely nothing about how to ride one. Tap on that app, get up, get on the thing, and next thing you know, you are rocketing along at 24 kilometers an hour by simply throttling up. Um, and so that's, uh, that's part of, of the, the major problem. What we encourage your listeners to do is the following. First, uh, tell your city councilors, don't allow this in our city, because unless they allow it, it can't be done. So the first thing to say is, like, we don't need to experiment on the population of your city uh, to find out that these things are a threat to their safety and their personal security. Uh, if they want to reduce gridlock, use bicycles. Like, we already have available a, uh, 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 an option uh, that will reduce gridlock. We don't, the idea that these are needed to reduce gridlock is, gridlock is also a sham, I believe. Uh, but tell your city councilors, not in our community, please, and also tell your provincial members of, of, of the legislature uh, that, if, uh, that this claim that the province is concerned about our safety is also a farce. 
if they were concerned about safety, they would have set mandatory provincial rules to ensure their safe use, or they would simply not allow them at all. The biggest difference between an e-scooter user and someone on a bike, because you don't have to be insured, you don't have to be licensed to ride a bike either, I guess the biggest difference would be the speed factor, right? Well, there's a combination of things. For one thing, at least um, in Toronto, where I come from, where there's bike uh, uh, a bike share service, they have to be parked uh, in those uh, parking uh, racks, not left all over the sidewalks. If you're if you're using a share service, <clears throat> the second thing is you can't throttle a bike up to 24 kilometers an hour in an instant when you've never ridden a bike before. Uh, so there's already uh, an experience thing. And the third thing is there are restrictions on riding them on sidewalks. The e-scooter regulations, last, last fall when the government was first discussing this with the public, they made it sound like they weren't going to allow these on the sidewalks. Now they say they are. So a pedestrian on the sidewalk is now um, an easy target. Now, let me just tell you one thing the province may say. They may say, oh, but we've set limits on how fast you can ride them on the sidewalk. They also said, oh, we're telling riders you can't leave them lying on the sidewalk. But those are offenses which are going to be impossible to enforce. If I'm walking on a sidewalk and I go flying over an e-scooter because it's been left on the sidewalk, I can't identify who left it there, so we can't prosecute them. If the province really meant business about protecting us, they would say that if an e-scooter was left on the sidewalk, it was confiscated. It was now the property is taken away from the owner. Then the rental companies would not allow them to be left on the sidewalk. They, th- that's their business model to have them left on the sidewalk. And the other thing is, if, if an e-scooter hits you and then sails off into the distance at 24 kilometers an hour, how do you identify who the rider is? You can't prosecute someone if you don't know who hit you. And we don't have cops standing on every street just waiting to identify e-scooter violators. So these are completely unenforceable regulations meant to create the impression that the province is concerned about our safety when they're not acting to protect our safety. It sounds like the communities that do adopt or, or, or subscribe to this pilot project uh, are going to be creating chaos for not only pedestrians, but people on their bikes and maybe even vehicles as well. Well, let me draw a comparison. You would never allow people to be subject to a drug trial for some new medication to see if it works without the consent of the people taking the drugs. But here, where the province is allowing for pilot projects where we could be exposed to a risk of these uh, injuring us or threatening our accessibility without our consent. We know that the e-scooter companies, they sure know how to lobby. They clearly got the ear of Premier Doug Ford. Uh, however, uh, and, and they no doubt will be lobbying city councilors the same way that corporate lobbyists always do uh, to get their inside track. Uh, And uh, we are concerned that no municipality should allow their own uh, populations to be the subject to non-consenting participants in a human experiment in this so-called pilot project. I completely agree with you as well in terms of uh, the notion that this is going to help cut down gridlock because I just can't think of many people or anyone who's going to be willing to leave their vehicle at home to take an e-scooter to work. It's just not going to happen. Well, the idea that they seem to have is that you'll take the bus 
to a bus stop, and then if there's an e-scooter lying around near you, you're going to you're gonna pick it up off the sidewalk where it's randomly left there because it may happen to be there at a convenient location. Then you're going to walk it to work on your e-scooter for the last uh, kilometer or two. Uh, but that uh, presupposes that we have to put up with these scattered all the heck over the place in sufficient numbers uh, to make them available when you want them. Now, I, I should make it clear, the rental companies that have had their successful lobby, and I mentioned the, the year of the premier, they're not on the hook for anything. They're not, uh, the, the province is not ensured that they will be liable every time one of their e-scooters injures somebody. They have not required that if the e-scooter is left lying on the sidewalk to trip someone, that the rental company is on the hook and lose their e-scooter and that they face penalties. They haven't required uh, pretty much uh, uh, anything, if not much, of the e-scooter companies. They're putting it all on the e-scooter rider who will have huge difficulty ever identifying when they injure someone uh, in the way they use the e-scooter. So the, the guys who are going to make the money, uh, they're off the hook. They, they just laugh all the way to the bank. Uh, the others get to laugh all the way to the hospital with their injuries. Do you know of any cities who have jumped on board to to partake in this pilot? Well, no. The, the regulations were just announced a month ago and just allow it to start uh, uh, on New Year's Day. And that, uh, I don't know of any municipality that has announced that they're doing it. And I don't know too many people are going to ride an e-scooter uh, in the snow and ice. I mean, that's even more risky to their own uh, safety. And remember, adults don't even have to wear a helmet, so they can go flying off these things, get a head injury, and we, the taxpayers, uh, will pay for their health care and have to have them cluttering up our uh, emergency rooms uh, where the premier said he would reduce the lineups, not increase them. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but nobody's announced yet that we know of, but... Our fear is that because the corporate lobbyists know how to get the inside track with politicians, they sure did at Queen's Park uh, with the Doug Ford government, that they're going to try to get the inside track with city councillors. Uh, and then next thing you know, we're going to face these kind of bylaws being enacted. So we're, again, we're, we're urging voters to tell their city councillors, not in our community, uh, and to tell their provincial members of the legislature to cancel this so-called pilot Go back to the drawing board and either don't allow this at all or set mandatory provincial safety requirements. Don't require us to lobby every single municipality to get our safety protected. Uh, rather, have the province set mandatory safety requirements across the board before we even start. David, great discussion today. Thanks for the time. Thanks so much for uh, addressing this topic. You got it. David Lepofsky is the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. He's also a visiting professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School. Interesting scenario if you're a e-scooter or I guess it doesn't apply to e-bikes. It probably should, shouldn't it? Got to be at least 16. Got to wear a helmet. I guess only until 18. And it can't weigh more than 45 kilometers or 45 kilograms. Cutting down on gridlock, I just can't see it. I can't see dozens or hundreds of people jumping on e-scooters so they can zip over to work. I think you'd be more apt to jump on public transit, would you not?
don't know, maybe that's a discussion for another day. E-scooter or HSR? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a psychology professor at the University of Scranton. His name is Dr. John Norcross. He's uh, studied resolutions for decades. And uh, he told, uh, this is an article on CNN, he told CNN that while about 40% of Americans set resolutions around January 1st, about 40 to 44% of them will be successful at six months. Which I find very interesting. I wouldn't have thought that figure would have been that high. But he also says if you believe in yourself, you're 10 times more likely to change via a New Year's resolution. Pretty interesting stuff. So whether you're quitting smoking, trying to eat better or lose some weight, whatever your resolution is, there's going to be some highs, and yes, there's going to be some lows. Kathleen Trotter is a personal trainer, fitness writer, and author of Finding Your Fit, and she joins us now here on The Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Kathleen. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. What a great topic. I love talking about goals. Well, tis the season, I guess, for resolutions. Are you a resolution-type person? I think that there's always moments make a goal. So it's not that it's January 1st, it's just that I believe in growth and personal development. So today's as good a day as any. But I think today is as good as any to make goals, not wishes. That's my tagline with all my clients. And I think too many of us make these grand proclamations. I'm going to get fit, I'm going to work out, I'm going to eat well, without taking the time to set up like, what does that mean? Does getting fit mean exercising twice a week, three times a week? Does it mean getting more steps? What does it mean for you, right? Instead of trying to find some generic program that you follow, how do you curate something that's going to work for you long term? You made a good point. Uh, You know, what works for that person? Because everyone is different. Everyone has a different goal. Um, But is the starting point to think small or to plan small? I think the starting point is to understand that motivation and willpower our fickle friends. And I think that for everybody, no matter what your goal is, if you want to run a marathon, if you just want to have some more vegetables, if you want to start small, if you want to start big, none of those things matter as much as understanding that how you feel at this moment is not how you're going to always feel. Meaning, you wake up January 2nd, and you're like, I'm going to do this. 2020 is going to be my decade. Okay, well, that's great. But you have to appreciate that when you're lying in bed in a week and it's cold and it's snowing, you're not going to want to get out of bed. When you've had a crazy day at work, you're just going to want to go home, watch Netflix, fetch. So you have to set up systems to save yourself from your future less motivated, more depressed, more angry self. And I think that's the key. People think, well, it's just because I'm motivated now. I'm going to see this through. I'm going to feel really great. No. You know what? Motivation comes in ebbs and flows. Um, I'm not always motivated. But what I have done is set up my life so that it doesn't really matter if I'm motivated or not because... Um, my systems are set in place, right? So I don't have a lot of crap in my house. So at 11 o'clock at night when I'm feeling, you know, a little bit sad and tired, uh, there's nothing for me to eat. If I'm going to go out, I have to go out to get my chocolate fix, right? And I'm like, I'm too lazy to do that. Um, So systems are going to be different depending on the person. So maybe your system is getting a workout buddy. Maybe your system is putting workout clothes in your car. So if a meeting gets canceled at work, you're like, oh, I can go to the gym at this moment. Maybe your system is gamifying the, um, the fitness So, you know, you get your family involved, you get people at work involved, um, you set up a challenge, 
you know, maybe it is rewards. Maybe it's saying, well, as long as I'm watching TV, I can be on the bike, but I can't watch TV if I'm not on the bike, right? If you're setting up a home gym. So it's knowing you and it's finding your version of what's going to work. But no matter what your version is, you have to have systems um, because otherwise you break apart. And at the, you know, the first sign of, you know, a meal that you want out or you're sad, you know, so maybe when you're sad, you phone a friend. Maybe that's your system. How big is having someone else doing the same thing or cheering you on uh, a factor? Well, I think that social uh, connection is so important. And the more and more research that comes out, you know, it shows that. But I think, again, the social connection that you need is going to depend on who you are, where you're located, how much money you have, how much time you have, um, and the season that you are in your life, right? So if you're a really crazy busy mom with, you know, three kids, maybe you can't have a workout buddy every day after work, but you can have an accountability buddy that you email with, and then maybe you see your workout buddy once on the weekend. Um, Maybe the social connection you have is with your family. So I think that's also just understanding that not only is your version of fit going to be different than your mother and your best friend, but your version of fit is going to change throughout your lifetime and what's going to work for you is going to change. So, you know, maybe right now you're really busy at work and you need to just have a a work fitness buddy and you guys, you know, keep track of your steps, you have a challenge, and then maybe when work gets a little bit less busy then that same person, you go to the gym after work. Um, maybe you're the person who really needs social connections. You join a running group or you join a Weight Watchers group, right? I think a lot of this is knowing you and doing you. So I often get my clients to just do an inventory and sort of say, okay, in the past, what's worked for you? Oh, CrossFit? Great. Go to CrossFit. Oh, a home gym? Great. Have a home gym. There's no right or wrong way to do fitness. You just have to do it. And I think sometimes we get all caught up in like, what's the best thing to do? And um, it's almost like an analysis paralysis. It's like, oh my God, there's so many options. What do I do? And it's like, well, it doesn't matter what's best. What matters is what you can do consistently, right? The benefits of the best workout are moot if you can't actually do it. So if in the past you notice that you hate spin classes, well, don't sign up for spinning. If you notice that you love getting your, you know, walking your dog, okay, well, turn your dog walk into some intervals. So do an in, um, inventory of what's worked to find your bright spots and then replicate those and curate a plan based on the things that you know you'll actually do. We're talking about New Year's resolutions here that uh, 2020 has uh, finally arrived. Rick Zamprin in for Bill Kelly here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our guest is Kathleen Trotter, personal trainer, fitness writer, and author of Finding Your Fit. It's okay to fail, right? Well, <laughs> to, to a point, I guess. Well, no, 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 but not only is it okay to fail, you're going to fail. If you are, you know, learning and growing, you have to have a growth mindset with all this stuff, which means if you say, oh, I'm not going to eat sweets, and then you end up having, you know, a chocolate bar at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, then instead of letting that quote-unquote failure spiral you into more um, less than ideal choices, which is what most people do. They're like, oh man, I'm a failure. I'm lazy. I can't do this. I might as well have another chocolate bar. I might as well skip my workout, right? Instead of doing that, you take a moment and you think, oh, okay, so why did this happen, right? Again, it's all about analysis and growth and learning. Okay, so I had a chocolate bar. Did I let myself get too hungry? So maybe I didn't have a healthy enough lunch. So maybe the answer is I make a little bit extra healthy dinner and then I bring that as my lunch and then I won't be hungry at three o'clock in the afternoon. Or maybe I ate food because I was actually just really frustrated with my boss. So then maybe what I need is a walk instead, or maybe I need to call, you know, one of my colleagues and say like, will you go for a walk with me? And then you have a little venting session. Um, But again, if you go with the idea of failure, then um, you're just going to let yourself negatively spiral. And that 
for sure is not a good thing. So if what you can say is, if I'm in the arena of life, right, to use, um, I don't know, if it's a, I think it's Churchill, he used that, you know, in the arena, you'll fall, you're going to get dirty, you're going to get messy, but what matters is you get back up and you keep fighting and you keep trying. Um, if you say that, I'm in the health arena and all that matters is that I keep going, that I pick myself back up and I learn and I grow, then you don't negatively shame spiral, right? I think the difference, what's key to understand is the difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is I did a behavior I'm not proud of and I learned from that. Shame is I'm a bad person, right? So you have a cookie. Guilt is like, oh, I didn't really want to eat that cookie. That wasn't great. Why did I eat the cookie? I let myself get too hungry. I'm too sad. I'm too mad. Um, how do I create systems so I don't have a cookie again, right? Whereas shame is, oh, I ate the cookie. I'm a bad person. I'm a lazy person. I might as well quit. And so that shame spiraling is what we want to get ourselves out of. And we want to say, like, I'm allowed to fail um, as long as I put failure in quotes. And failure is more just learning and growing, right? Perfect doesn't exist. There's no perfect diet. There's no perfect workout. Um, perfection is Perfectionism just sets us up for failure, um, like really true failure. And the only really true failure is falling down and never getting back up again, right? Um, and as long as in life you're just sort of saying, okay, well, I fell down seven times, I'm dusting myself off, and I'm getting up eight times, it's the learning process. It's just staying on, it's the getting back on your fitness horse, um, course correcting as quickly as possible, and getting back on your horse a more informed rider. Like learn from the experience. We're living in a very public time in our history. I mean, we share so much on social media. Is that an important tool we can use, or is that something that people should stay away from? Because there's a lot of support on social media, but there's a lot of hate and anger on social media yeah, as well. I think it goes back to, you know, um, it can be good and it cannot be good. It kind of depends on who you are and if it's something you need and how you use it. I think with social media, it's very easy to get into this in comparison. Um, and comparison is literally the thief of joy, right? It's like you get on social media and you're like, oh, she's doing so well. He's doing so well. You know, and it's easy to spiral into, well, I'm a failure, so I might as well not even try. Um, but if you can curate your social media so you're following people who are inspirational and who are motivating and who inspire you to get off the sofa, um, then I think it's great. And if you can use it in a way that's really... Um, intelligent and growth-oriented, go for it. If it's inspiring for you to post photos, if you can join a group on Facebook where everybody's encouraging, go for it. But just know that, you know, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks of you. What matters is if you're proud of your actions, right? So what's not good is to get on social media and be like, oh, this person says that I should be doing 500 crunches and I'm only doing, you know, 20, then I'm a failure. It's like, no, I'm doing 20 crunches. That's awesome. And maybe tomorrow I'll do 25. But it doesn't matter what this other person who I don't know thinks. Um, one of the people that I most respect is uh, Brené Brown. And she does a lot of work on uh, the difference between shame and guilt and how to um, get away from this comparison thing. And what she says is you create a list of five people that you actually care about and respect, you know, your mother, your father, your partner. And if those people give you constructive criticism, then you listen and you think, oh, interesting. But if it's somebody that's not on your list, and that would be all of those people on social media that are, you know, being cruel for the sake of being cruel, then you just let it go. And you think, oh, it doesn't matter. Water off a duck's back. This is not my issue. Um, I am doing this to make myself proud. I'm not doing it to make everybody on the internet proud. On the motivation front, or maybe the, the boredom front, how important is it to mix things up? So not doing the same thing every time you're focused on your resolution goal. I think it's a 
again, I'm just going to circle back to it's important to know yourself. Um, I find mixing things up extremely important. For me, boredom is a kiss of workout death. Like if I get bored, I don't want to do it. But there's some people that it's really good. They just want to go out and go for a walk and they want to listen to their podcast or take their dog for a walk. And, you know, I might find that boring. They don't. And again, it doesn't matter what everybody else does. It only matters what works for you. So take an inventory of what's worked for you in the past. And if doing a bunch of different fun fitness classes, um, always, you know, changing up your running route, uh, those things, keeping the variety going works for you, then go for it. Do that. Um, but if you find that really intimidating, don't do that, right? Like, think of it this way. Being active and eating well and being mindful of your health, that's a non-negotiable. Um, that's the mindset you have to think about. It's like active every day, movement every day is a non-negotiable. But how I do it, that is up you as an individual right if it works for you to walk your dog walk your dog if it works for you to go to the gym go to the gym because here's a really key thing for everybody to understand once you have a habit of being active you can tweak that habit so if you start walking your dog and then you decide you want to actually turn that into a run great turn it into a run but if you don't have a habit that you can tweak you're just going to continue to do nothing so don't aim for perfect it doesn't have to you don't have to start perfect in fact you're never going to start perfect because perfect doesn't exist just start and then tweak as you go, but have that understanding that being active is a non-negotiable. And as I go, I'll, I'll make it more and more perfect. It's a process, um, and I'll optimize as I go. We just have 60 seconds to go. How important, just circling back to step number one, how important is it to write something specific down, whether it's big or small? Um, I think it's hugely important. I think being as aware of who you are and what you need as possible is really key and being as prepared as possible is key. So don't just sort of say, I'm going to work out. You have to dial down on what does that mean? Um, do I, and what accommodations does that mean in my life? So, you know, if I have kids, do I need to get my partner to do the kid drop off so I can work out in the morning? Um, do I need to get a home gym so I can work out at home? Like, look at your life and really look at your life. That's the, the reality of your life. Like, not what you want, like not aspirational goals, but like what is, what is real? How much money do I have? How much time do I have? When can I make this happen? Put it in your schedule and put your long and your short term goals. Like, maybe originally your goal is to walk 10 minutes, but then you say, in a month, my goal is going going to be to walk half an hour. How are you going to make that happen? Are you going to do it transport, like on your way to work? Are you going to do it at work on your lunch? Are you going to pace while you do conference calls? Like be as specific as possible with the idea that you could always tweak as you go. But if you don't put it into your life, if you don't figure out how you're going to make it happen, it won't happen. Great tips from Kathleen Trotter, personal trainer, fitness writer, and author of Finding Your Fit. Kathleen, thanks for the time today. Love your energy, and we'll have you on uh, the show uh, in the not-too-distant future. I would love it. Happy New Year. Same to you. Kathleen Trotter, uh, Finding Your Fit. Check it out. Uh, you can Google it or uh, head to your local bookstore or library and uh, pull it off the shelf and give it a good read. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.